Welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts play film roulette. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Waterman, joined as always by Mae Finch. Hello. And of course, Mr. Will Rotondi. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I hope everyone's having a nice weekend. Uh, the Jags uh, lost again, but to Kansas City this time. Played a decent game. So just give a little <laughs> football update. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't can't complain. I had some Friday D and D with May Finch, uh, which was a ball because I think <laughs> everyone was a little more inclined to to cut loose. No no hard schedule out. It's like it was a good time. I was laughing even after y'all had left. You had me in stitches. <laughs> it was a very silly uh, session, which is like the best kind. A lot of role yeah. play. Yeah, and a cliffhanger that was sort of like just worked out, so that that's always a good time. There might have been a mind flayer involved. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, on today's episode, we will be wrapping up our Andre Tarkovsky <laughs> director drill down. We'll be talking about Stalker, uh, which is a 1979 film. Uh, more on that in a few. And we'll, be, of course, be back to drawing side quests. Uh, but first, we wanted to take a few minutes to uh, remember Kevin Conroy, voice of Batman for over 20 years and just beloved all around voice actor who passed away uh, tragically this last week at 67. I have very fond memories of watching Batman, the animated series um, growing up. And I will say it's one of the few shows that like I still go back to like as an adult and uh have been just delighted by how well it holds up like the animation style but really the acting um in particular I think is a highlight you got Mar- Mark Hamill of course opposite of Kevin Conroy in several standout episodes as the Joker uh but Kevin Conroy really for me like became like the best Batman like and I know that like he never really did any live action work but I think he's the definitive Batman and Bruce Wayne. So very, very sad news. Um, Will, did you grow up watching the animated series as well? I know we're, we're roughly the same age. So that would have been airing <laughs> when we were, uh, you know, like young lads. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I loved I loved the animated series. Um, I love the movie they did off of that Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Definitely mm-hmm. recommend. I still love that film today. Like go back. and It holds up. It is amazing. And yeah, Mark Hamill is the Joker. Come on. And uh, I think under the red hood, he's also in that one. That that's a very good like standalone. But uh, may have you ever seen Batman the animated series? And are you familiar with uh, Kevin Conroy's work as Batman and like any of the other numerous projects? Like God, I feel like he did a lot of stuff like with that character. But I am not, and I know this is just kind of what happens with pop culture. But it's like I feel like I never hear about these great people until they die, and it's like, well, if I'd known earlier, I would have checked out their stuff <laughs> earlier. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like this happened with uh with Bourdain for me. Like I didn't really mm. know who he was until mm. he died, and now I love him. But it's like I feel like we should have more reminders of the greats, except for just their memorial services. Yeah, I it, it, on the one hand it is very like uh you know um sad, but it, it's it's bittersweet because I feel like there is like a whole lot of engagement that happens where um you know when you when there's somebody that is beloved is lost and, and it's like really all over your timeline and your social media um it, it can drive you to be curious and and you know to to check out some of the works which is uh is lovely in, in its way you know that there's like new people discovering it too like in the face of tragedy i think that's uh kind of a nice thing personally 
Um, the Arkham games too. Got a shout out as a as a gamer. You know, he was Batman on those and did a phenomenal job um, as well. So um get a i mean it was just a tough one uh this week because it is like literally like my childhood and he seemed like such a great guy i urge you listeners if you um heard of but never read his uh the story that he penned for dc pride it's been made available free for a limited time and it's amazing um kind of i think it's called finding batman and uh it is sort of um, a coming out story along with some other really just nice insight. And it's I, I really, really urge you to read it. It's it's an amazing, amazing um, piece. Um, I had not personally read it until it was made available for free. And I just I think it's such a amazing piece of work. So um, check that out. Let's pivot to uh, our side quest for the for the week. R.I.P. Kevin, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I said that, so I'm um, sorry. My brain's a little scrambled today, but um, let's let's have us a side quest to cheer us up here. And it's a Deus Ex Machina. Do you guys want me to recap what a Deus Ex Machina is, or uh, do you recall? I suppose I could do it for our audience too, if nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this prompt is talk about a moment in the film where you can no longer suspend your disbelief for the sake of the plot character, etc. I actually have one for this. Um, and it's one of the, like my most frustrating experiences at a movie because I went from so hot to so cold, like for the last like 30, 45 minutes, but it's uh three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, uh, which is a mm. film that. I loved, I loved, I loved until I didn't. I find the last 30 minutes of that film to be absurd. And I'm not super familiar with Martin McDonough's work. So I don't know if that's like a director trademark or what, but it goes from being this uh, essentially like a mystery drama, you know, about this um, grieving mother who is like, uh, taking drastic measures, like sure, um, it, to kind of hold the police department accountable about the, you know, the the murder of her daughter. And it's got a powerhouse performance by Francis McDormand, and you're like, you're with her, you're with her, you're with her. I don't want to spoil too much about the film, but because um, I think it's worth watching. But let's just say that, like, the last thirty minutes, um, the things that she and some of the other characters get up to, like, have not been remotely telegraphed or like set up in the f- preceding hour and a half. And it goes from like bad to just like absurd in a way where I was like, "What is happening with this movie? Like, what what is going on?" And I really, really, really dislike the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. For that reason, there, there's some, some I, I like the Sam uh, Rockwell kind of character arc. I think that was like one of the saving graces for me, but kept it somewhat measured and where I was able to stick with it. But um, that is I just remember one of the few times in a movie theater where like I think I literally threw my hands up in the air. And it was just like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. Uh, have either of you seen this film? Do you recall the I, you know, again, I'm trying to be a little light on spoilers because we haven't pr- uh, prompted our audience to say that this one will be spoiled. So. <laughs> I remember uh, seeing. Oh, sorry. No, no, go for it. Here, here, here. I was just gonna say I remember seeing a ton of promos for it when it was coming out. I think I saw billboard promos for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fittingly, <Three>? uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember like it. Um, I don't know. I always hesitate to see a new film if there's a ton of marketing and promo around it, but I hear sure. very little actual like organic buzz. And I didn't really hear 
my friends talking about it or people that like, you know, podcasts or YouTubers that I listen to talking about it. So I was like, I'm going to wait and see if this actually gains popularity or not. And then I forgot it existed. So I have never seen it, but I remember it had a lot of marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sure did. A lot of uh, Oscar campaigning too, like after its initial run, you know, that was... um... Uh, I think, you know, did did pretty well, if I recall. At the, the I know Sam Rockwell for sure picked it up, which, you know, deserved. Um, but uh, how about you, Will? Have you have you seen this film? Probably seen about four minutes of the middle of this movie when I was on a treadmill <laughs> in a gym back in like 2020. As the director intended. 2019. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. <yeah. laughs> Watch it in the gym when you're working out. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, it's a it's a journey worth taking, and I, I I wonder if I like you know I like I you know I believe in second chances. I wonder if I were to go revisit this, how I would feel, knowing sort of where it goes. If maybe I would notice things that set the ending up better, uh, but I don't I don't know. And again, I'm not very familiar with the director's work, so it could just be so, like that like final act curveball. Maybe it's something that he likes to do. I just didn't. I felt like I was watching a different set of characters than what I had spent. And and I, I have to urge like the first hour and a half of that movie I thought was so excellent and pitch perfect that I, it's really why it took me by surprise because I was like, this is a big old mess. Did you just not know how to resolve these threads? So you're like, all right, um, let's just have them go nuts. Like, let's just have them go nuts. Um, maybe, I don't know. So well, report back if you guys do. uh because uh, again, it's very much worth watching, especially with the uh, Banshee of Innershin, I think is what it's called. His new film um, might make a good like sort of if you've never seen a Martin McDonough film, uh, a good like little gateway. Um, that's mm-hmm. supposed to be a very good. That's the Colin Farrell. Uh, and who's the other actor? Brendan Gleeson. Uh, yeah. film that's in theaters right now. It's nice. about a friendship breakup. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, that's my pick. Um, let us know in, uh, you know, the, the the Twitter space or the comments. Uh, did you see Three Billboards? Did you find the end uh, surprising? Because I would love people to chime in uh, and hear what their thoughts are. And that brings us to our main quest for the day, a film called Stalker, also directed by Andre Tarkovsky. This is the second and final part of our director drill down where we are taking a, a selected look at a, a director's body of work and connecting the dots on themes and similarities and uh, really just talking about what we make of uh, of the director's work based on this sort of sample size. So this film was uh, made in 1979. It is based on a 1972 novel called Roadside Picnic by Arkady Strogatsky, Strogatsky, and Boris Strogatsky. I'm probably butchering that. I'm very, very sorry if I am. <laughs> and uh, I suppose I'll do my best for a recap. So here we go. As we know, <laughs> these might be a little bit rocky. You guys can chime in as as you uh-huh. like, please. Uh, so Stalker is uh, a film about uh, well, the t- titular character uh, name. I think only a Stalker in the film. Um, as far as I can tell, maybe his wife drops his name somewhere at, towards the end, uh, who, for lack of a better term, uh, is a tour guide for people to visit this forbidden area called the zone, which was supposedly hit by a meteor and has uh, a lot of strange occurrences. Uh, we're given 
some great context clues where, hey, the military is going to prevent you from going into this, but they will not follow you because they are terrified of what lies inside the zone. Uh, he is accompanied by two characters known as the professor and the writer who um, are all, I guess, interested in seeing this uh, special room that supposedly grants the desire of anyone who enters it. Doing good so far? Am I missing anything? Uh, yeah, we see sounds some... good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we see some marital tension before he leaves. Uh, wife not really big on uh, the stalker uh, job occupation. It's implied, I think, that he's gone to jail uh, for, for going into the zone. And uh, anyway, the three men proceed on their journey. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of talking. And <laughs> the occasional weird uh, sequence of people napping in a bog. <laughs> and uh <laughs> we see some some strange uh occurrences where uh space is sort of ill-defined um time is a little bit ill-defined sometimes uh in other words characters appear to kind of like loop back in on themselves and where they just were and uh we know that the stalker respects the zone and is terrified uh, his two companions sometimes not so much um we hear along the way the story of a, another stalker by the name of Porcupine who lost a brother on a journey and who uh, subsequently killed himself supposedly after gaining great wealth by entering the room. Uh, fast forwarding kind of towards the climax because again, there is a lot of walking and talking in this film. Uh, the men finally reach the room and the professor reveals that he has a 20 kiloton or kilo yeah kiloton right kiloton yes uh bomb and intends to destroy the room there's some fighting there's some arguing there's some more philosophical musing all three men decide not to walk into the room and cut back to the town where they all started and they are uh, essentially chit-chatting. They've acquired a dog on their journey. <laughs> the stalker reconciles with his wife and his uh, daughter, who is disabled in some way, shape, or form, uh, seems to be able to move objects with her mind. Credits. Did I miss, any, did I miss anything? <laughs> there, there were no credits. It just said the end. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Fade to black. Uh, fade to black. Uh, anything that you would add? that synopsis i try to do my best to keep it succinct not really uh there is a little bit where like um there's a drawing of sticks and <laughs> that kind of is like the the first big conflict between the trio because the writer draws the long stick and then insists that all the sticks were long and he was set up <laughs> yeah, he's like, you, you're playing favorites bro that's <laughs> basically what he tells him yeah yeah, we'll talk about that because that, that sequence in the shot behind uh, Will here, if you're a uh, audio listener, it's sort of the weird, lumpy mini sand dunes uh, mm -hmm. uh, is a pretty standout scene um, that you see. Uh, not really talked about so much. I mean, I'm sure it's talked about, but I've seen that image like a lot, like on the internet before, like on film websites oh. and stuff. Nice. The sort of set design is very uh, famous, but... Oh, okay. So, uh, who wants to go first on general impressions? Yeah, I'm going to go down to, uh, you know, from top down this time. So, May, I, I'm going to call on you first for general Alrighty. impressions. Unfortunately, I, I feel similar with the last one in terms of this just being too long and the pacing just being a bit too slow. Um, I'm sure that would feel differently if I was watching this in the theater, like maybe, but yeah, it just 
pacing did not work for me whatsoever. That being said, <laughs> well, I thought the shots were generally too long. I did really enjoy the cinematography. Um, there is a shot done through this really gross decaying car. I didn't think a decaying car could look this gross, but it somehow does. Uh, <laughs> where the camera just slowly pans into the car as the men are walking away and you can see them through the car and they, um, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking with looking at the camera here too, which is interesting. And that's mm. one of the moments. I think it's one of the first moments they do that actually. Um, and that, I thought that was very cool. So I like the camera work. Um, I thought that the philosophical discussions were interesting, but um, for me, I think that was the strongest tie between this and, and Solaris was just the fact that a lot of the plot and, and setting as rich as, as rich as the setting was, was kind of window dressing just for these uh, philosophical debates, which is not necessarily bad. It just wasn't terribly gripping for me. Um I liked the climax of the film, but then the ending kind of confused me. <laughs> uh, so I'll start with what I liked. Um, I got to agree with May. I love the cinematography. Um, I thought the story was interesting. Like the main point behind it was interesting. And I would love to see it. Like, I, I feel like this could be a movie that could be remade or at least paid homage to very well. Um, but I agree that the pacing was way too long. If I was in a theater, I would have passed out. I would have just been really relaxed and comfortable, which was kind of the same way in the last, you know, in Solaris, where it's like, ah, nature. But there's like so very little music. And just listening to these three guys talk about random philosophical stuff, like, man, look, if you had brought, I don't know, like some some hash brownies or something with you, this might have been a different, you know, it might have been a good time. But like, this is like way too long. So I think that just that incoherent nature of like throwing out all these philosophical arguments, debates, complaints, like everybody's just really depressed. Again, kind of what we expected after Solaris, you know, a lot of unhappy people dealing with their feelings. Um, so that was really the two major detractors for me. But overall, I thought it was interesting. I think as an artistic, you know, as an artsy film, it's very, in some ways, very beautiful. Um, and it's ambiguous enough that you can look for different layers within it, but it's just really hard to try and focus and keep your attention on if you're just used to sort of our, our current age of, of, of film style. Yeah. All, all great points. Um, I, I had a hard time with this movie. I'm not going to lie. Like I found this even more challenging than Solaris. I agree on the beauty of things. I think it's an excellent setup and it's an amazing world to play around in i don't think much is done like the potential to me is not reached at all in this movie um if i were to like pitch this to somebody i would say it's as if uh it, like imagine the lord of the rings and if they had just talked about the philosophy of like using the ring and what to do with the ring got to mount doom and then turned around like that is what it <laughs> is to me like um, yeah that's good i like that you know, like with no fights or anything like in, in between the journey, like they literally just walked and talked on the way to Mordor. Um, I see why this is well regarded. Uh, this one is maybe one that someday I'll go back and revisit, like um, not anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I again, with like with Solaris, I see its influence everywhere in video mm -hmm. games, in other like kind of dystopian, um, you know, works. 
uh, I was particularly impressed with um, not just like the like I think what's behind Will again is probably more of like an artificial set, but some of the stuff that they shot outdoors. Like I'm not I didn't really want to look up too much while I was watching it, but wherever they shot this, like there's an authenticity to this that I thought was really striking um, and interesting. Uh, but it is very long, and there is a lot of talking and. I can say at one point I genuinely thought that I forgot to unpause or that I had, <laughs> uh, sorry, I forgot that I had left a, a scene paused or paused by accident because of how long the camera lingered without moving. <laughs> and I know that we'll talk about it. That's like one of his trademarks, but like, I feel like after a certain point, something's got to happen in the shot or you got to move on. Like it's like a still, <laughs> still painting. Um, and I it just I struggled like between last mm -hmm. night and this morning at points to like really like get get through this in a way that um, I haven't really traditionally with like films from different eras and countries. Like I I think it's not even like when this movie was made because like we're talking seventy nine right like I've I've seen films from numerous countries from this era and before and uh, I can genuinely say that I think this is like some of the most difficult time I've ever had getting through a movie. Um, uh, despite it being beautiful and despite having great setup. So that's, that's my impression. <laughs> of yeah. it. So, um, and this is just me being honest, you know, um, I, that's yeah, not I, to say, I think it's, it's a bad movie, but, um, there you go. Yeah. I definitely so, had to break it up into like two or three viewings. Like it was like an hour in one piece and then like 30 minute increments after that to pace myself. So yeah, <laughs> I just Coffee. chucked it. Nice. You? Oh, you're a beast. You're well a beast. done. Yeah. Well done. Did you bring coffee? Something? Oh, <laughs> coffee, kombucha. Ooh, yeah. Water. I had multiple liquids. Stay hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I think Chris made some comment in the previous one about bring a stiff drink with you for Solaris. I feel like bring like extra like caffeinated whatever espresso coffee for this one to go through. Like it's not. Just Poor loco, you know. I think oh, best of both worlds. Bring gotta, it back, yeah. yeah or Irish coffee, Irish coffee. Yeah. If you know That'll you want something too. a bit more elevated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, like, all dumping on this movie, uh, I, which I, I think we're being pretty fair measured. But like, aside, uh, let's talk about some of the uh, thematic elements that are you know kind of bridge this and Solaris. So, um. Again, this is not like a pop quiz or test, but anything that you may have noticed while uh, watching this and going like, oh, OK, like I'm I'm sensing a little bit of a pattern, excuse me, or that this is like a thing with Tarkovsky. So anybody can chime in. People yeah. asking questions that have no answers because everyone's <laughs> answering their question with another question. They're all Socrates. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, he loves water. I can tell you that, man, from watching yeah. these two films. He's got a thing about water, um, uh, big time. Uh, to the point of where, like, by the end of this movie, I was like, all right, we get it. Like, uh, you just you like your water. Um, he sorry. almost loves water as much as James Cameron. All right. And that's saying something. So, yeah. He was trying to, like, you. he had to make up for Solaris. You know, you talked about that rain sequence in Solaris where it's like, ah, that's gimmicky. Like, he upped his game for this. All right. When that one scene, un like, what, when they were like in the tunnel and they were like, no, we got to have like more rain, more rain this time. I was genuinely um, afraid for the actor safety in that fight where they were like um, throwing each other around in that like indoor pond with beakers everywhere. I was like, oh my God, like, one wrong, you know, trip there. 
and yep. uh, that's not going to feel great. But uh, I'm sorry, May, you started to say something. No, you're good. Uh, I was just going to say, in addition to like all the nature shots, I I feel like there's a lot of decay and like mm-hmm. decay as a reflection of one's kind of mental state too. Because I know that was a big thing on the space station uh, yeah. in Solaris, and as they go into these ruins, it's like. There's like some trash lying around outside, but it feels like the deeper they go in the ruins, the more just random shit there is everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You called it on the monochromatic scenes paired with color um, on the last episode, Will. So nice job uh, with a little bit of prediction there. Uh, Of course, it opens more of a sepia tone, right? Than like the grayscale stuff we saw in Solaris, but uh, Um, I was kind of wondering if the whole movie was going to be like that. And then I was like, no, 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 I've seen shots. I know there's color coming. So um, <laughs> it gave it kind of like a silent movie kind of feel to it. Like that opening sequence mm-hmm. where he's at home. Um, I actually really enjoyed like the opening uh, of this movie in general, kind of the setup. Like I had my attention and like the escape from the town. So um, I think all that was good. It was just more or less when they started the journey, which is like not what you want to happen. You don't want your attention to wane <laughs> once it's mm-hmm. like, you know, up. Well, first, I got to give credit to May for bringing up the color difference in the last yeah. one. Um, so I appreciate you mentioning that. I'm, I'm, I wish oh, we'd had sorry, a little bit was... more time to talk about it in in that one for Solaris, but it was like, it, you know, we just we we did talk about a lot then. So maybe we can kind of discuss our thoughts on the use of it here as well as why it's not used around the child at the very end. Or if that's something that kind of talks about the end a little bit too soon, we can come back to that later. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> we can jump all around, I think. Okay, I feel like the the sepia has a slightly different tint to it in the, like, in the ruins, like in the shot behind Will right now, versus yeah. when they're at home. It's a lot yellower and warmer at home, whereas, you know, in the ruins, it's kind of this odd bluish green. I'm trying to remember exactly which scenes went black and white in Solaris because I feel like sometimes it reflected again kind of an emotional or mental state but some of it was just highway shots so I'm not really sure if I can which to be fair I think that pilot probably you know like if you're talking about when he's driving around town yeah I think that I think that's reflecting his emotional state a little bit right Mm -hmm. Um, that's fair yeah, after we saw like that historical dot, well, not historical documents, but like <laughs> I don't know why that was the phrase that came to mind. I feel like Galaxy Quest is on my brain right now. Um, uh, the like the the when he was having his like not deposition, but like his um, he was being interviewed. The pilot was being interviewed after having gone through what he had seen on Solaris, and so he's talking to, and so all of that, you know, like traditional like. I guess footage would have probably looked black and white for that, but sort of, I guess mirroring that sort of vibe that he had when he was dealing with that. And then, yeah, that very long uh, tracking shot of traffic. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of interpreted in this as like, this is like the stalker is it's like Dorothy going through the door a little bit in Oz. Like, so he's mm-hmm. at home, he's mm-hmm. unfulfilled. Like things are sort of, blah you know for him and as soon as they get to the zone that's where like the color you know kind of kicks up and he's out in this place that he sort of uh idolizes or uh, what's the word that's not quite the word i'm looking for but um oh goodness uh he puts it on a pedestal basically right like he he sort of holds holds this place um in, in special regard we'll say so yeah like that that love of nature 
that he seems to have like the focus on everything being very vibrant when you're out in it or at least more so than like when you're in the city and it's much more concrete or metal sort of coloration and then i don't know like it did seem very off-putting in the scene with the image that we've got up there where they're sort of within like the the tunnel system and they're around all this sand but then like the color changes anyway a little bit more um and then kind of gets very strange when the writer breaks the fourth wall and starts talking to the audience about how he really feels about his life and what people expect of him for his profession and what he thinks of humanity in general and then so it's like he has his little like soliloquy for a, a minute like this is a stage play and then it just sort of like okay now we're we're walking again which was very strange i don't want to like change subjects but i was very confused by what actually happened in that room maybe you're not supposed yeah. to know but <laughs> where like the owl swoops in for like a second and then like does like a matrix oh it's coming in again from the same angle and comes and lands like the yeah like the, the deja vu kind of sort glitches. of aspect yeah. yeah and also like when um stalker and the professor first walk in the room and see um that the writer's gotten himself like into trouble or whatever they throw a nut and then just dive into the dunes yeah <laughs> yeah and then you like you see the writer on the ground and he doesn't move and i'm like oh did he die like is this what that what the stalker was talking about like don't be very careful like it it, it could kill you out here <laughs> like did he just die and then he gets up and then starts talking about stuff <laughs> yeah i i'm assuming there's like some kind of weird like spatial displacement things because uh as with solarius there was some great like almost like trick shots where like the camera will start on somebody who's in like one place and then as it's moving around like they reappear like in a different position and place like within the room and it's very disorienting um so yeah i kind of interpreted that as like the bird went in through some like invisible like almost like portal and then shot out of like a different one and maybe nice. that's why the nuts have like sort of the, the flag on the end of them is like he's looking for like the traps that might displace you somewhere um that mm. mm -hmm. i but I, I that is just pure conjecture on <laughs> what little context we get for for that yeah that helps yeah do you think do you think that this is just a monologue that you're hearing because it's a movie like from the writer like this is just kind of an interior stream of consciousness or do you think that the camera is just where the professor and the stalker are and he's talking to them but it just looks like he's making a fourth wall break i think it's both right a little mm -hmm. bit I, I think that like it, it now is look a at you wall. being wishy-washy after calling me <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, uh, i'm not being i'm not being wishy-washy so much as i'm saying i think he is talking to them but also like it's intended as a fourth wall break um yeah but yeah <laughs> um <laughs> a lot of cannibal uh, imagery in that speech fits the one i'm thinking of we're like talking about people devouring his work gobble oh that's yeah gobble gobble um yeah i think this may have been the last film that tarkovsky made in russia i know his final two films he made elsewhere because mm -hmm. of some clashes with the soviet state media um <clears throat> i did get that much context i guess and kind of looking um looking up a little bit of his like history again i didn't want to taint too much of my discussion today with y'all but um i was curious about like more of the biography kind of side of things than anything else 
so the other thing I think that like is a, a nice little connective thread between these two movies is sort of your desires manifesting in some way. And Solaris, it's in the form of a person, obviously, or people, sometimes plural, uh, ambiguous thing that, as we kind of find out later, maybe isn't what it's cracked up to be, um, potentially. Uh, so I think that's like kind of that inner reflection is um, and and things sort of coming out of you uh, through supernatural or extraterrestrial means uh, definitely present in both films. There's an interesting way he plays with like the good and bad of that, right? Because mm. in Solaris, it's like seen as pretty ex- explicitly a bad thing to have a physical manifestation of your regrets on the space station with you. Uh, but then, you know, our, our psychologist protagonist actually, you know, gets some, I, I, I don't know if after all of that, it's helped him process his grief or if he's just re-traumatized, frankly, but <laughs> he gets some degree of happiness and enjoyment, even if it's brief out of it. And, um, yeah, I think this is very much just an inverse of that concept, something that looks good on the surface, but, um, is darker when you delve into it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Uh, the story of, of Porcupine? And I love the I think it's the writer's interpretation. He's the one, right, that kind of puts forth the theory yes. of what actually took place. I, I like if you guys are down, I, I, I enjoyed that sort of story that persists throughout the, the film. And I thought it was really interesting. So to kind of recap, uh, Porcupine's brother dies uh while in the zone right like it's a he he passes away in the zone porcupine eventually makes it to the room and is given a large amount of wealth when upon his return back to for lack of a better term the real world or like you know the, the the city i guess and uh was two days later he uh he hangs himself um despite coming into a vast amount of wealth and sort of the stalker interprets it originally as he's been cursed or maybe this room there's a double-edged sword to it like you're going to get what you want but you be careful what you wish for kind of thing the writer puts forth the theory that he went into this room his deepest heart's desire was wealth and not for his brother to be brought back alive and he couldn't live with the uh the knowledge that that was what was in his heart something superficial and that's why he kills himself. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. Um, mm-hmm. That seemed more likely to me. Like, that's much more reasonable than, like, this thing's cursing you. But eh, who knows? What did you guys think of that? Did you like that um, sort of discussion and musing? That's, like, one of the few musings that I was, like, locked in. And I'm like, ooh, this is, like, because <laughs> some of them I was like, oh, God. But, uh, yeah, what did you think? It was definitely one of the more coherent sorts of thoughts that went along with the film that you know that you could keep track of and then sort of was this foreshadowing almost in the background about as you're wondering some of the questions that they ask later in the film it kind of pops back up and then gets revised each time and so i think that that is an interesting perspective about it i don't know for me i almost i mean it's Ah, that's iffy. I'm going to be wishy-washy with my answer. I'm going to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I got to think about that a little bit. I I am pro-wishy-washy. I was just calling out Chris for the hypocrisy. (laughs) The difference is I asked you to make an assessment and come down and like a coward, you were like, uh, could be I. I did too. Okay, well. (laughs) 
<laughs> I feel like if you get your innermost desire, this is just me speaking for me. I can't speak for everybody, obviously. And like the whatever the political climate would be for anybody who got their wish granted. Like, so like, in, I don't know, because it's sort of like, I come at it from being in a culture where individualism is sort of promoted, like you ha- you're, it's very much like, you deserve this, and you should go out and do that. And so it's like everything sort of even though we like to try and, and work as a community, very often, the messaging that we're told is to be very individual, and stand out. And so it and like, the American dream, you know, go out and do and make your own wealth and your own success. And so then it's like, so for something like that, it seems like that would kind of track and I wouldn't see somebody who became super rich as necessarily committing suicide. Although there would be the grief of not having your brother come back. Um, I don't know. That seems, that's just, that was the first impression that I got because the writer is very pessimistic and he doesn't see he always looks at the negative i mean everybody tends to look at the negative for humanity when they're talking except for maybe a lesser extent the professor although i don't know he's the one who brought the bomb so (laughs) (laughs) yeah even that's terrified of what what bad things will be done with this like he immediately sees this thing as like a threat (laughs) yeah and so i mean for a scientist of that era with nuclear you know mm-hmm. threats everywhere that's that's a very reasonable interpretation i think yeah yeah <laughs> i was right there with him i'm like if this thing can actually do what you're saying like the wrong person gets in there like game over yeah and their hope is like i wish the world was less populated and like there's like a thanos thing where it's like so oh, no. half, half of everybody is gone and you're like yeah that was what he wished for he really hated people <laughs> so i don't know that's yeah i I don't know. I and because it is all it, like isn't and now Porcupine, just to clarify, was a stalker. Is is that right? Like yes. he was the one who taught the stalker that we're with sort of everything, like about the room, about what happens to people that go in, what may happen to people before they get there. So it's all like his story to current stalker about it. So man. Yeah, it is it is weird to think about because it sort of just forces you to think about if you went into the room what do you think you would get and how you would react to if you got it? Yeah. I'm going to start talking like these guys do. I'm just going to start rambling for two and a half hours about what I think. <laughs> I mean, it's notable that none of them fucking go into the room, right? Yeah. Yeah. That made me mad though. I'm like, you made it this far and nobody's going to go in there. Cowards. <laughs> I know. You had a like, fight over this. Somebody, they're not, a, go into they're the not room. about to find out, you know, like <laughs> they're, uh, they're like, no, we're gonna stop short of fucking around and finding out basically they fucked around a little bit outside they did yeah (laughs) i really wish though like for a moment for a brief moment i thought maybe the there's gonna be a twist at the end of this film and they're all gonna be like escape from like a psychiatric ward and they've all just been like a bunch of like acting like a bunch of kids just playing make-believe out in the woods somewhere and then it's gonna be like no there is nothing there is no like very like just I don't know, just like that desolate reality. Like there's nothing out here that's causing anything. There's no room. There's no zone. There's no wish fulfillment. It's all just in your head. And I was like, that's so just maybe. bridge to Terabithia. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just so... walk in. It's a snack bar. And like we realize they've been in a movie theater the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Man. <laughs> yeah. But then, and then it was like, no, there. I, I liked that there was a payoff because I was really hoping for some, like some evidence because you go through it and it's so, 
it feels like everything's very calm and serene and nothing like you know the stalker is always cautioning like we need to either hurry up or we need to just slow down because if you go too fast or you go too slow something bad could happen but nothing bad happens and it's all just they're just talking and walking through the woods and there's no sense of danger outside of them creating their own feeling of danger and then they get to the end and they don't go in the room and i'm like so is there anything out here and then when his daughter like starts to and we'll and we'll talk about the end and la that last scene where she starts moving stuff i'm like okay finally all right there is evidence that something happened <laughs> uh it's, it's like a marvel origin story is what that scene reminded me of like like a little nice. teaser you would get at the end yeah. of a marvel movie where it's yeah. like ah. <laughs> it's like <"What>? <laughs> <laughs> He's moving you just stuff. made it through two and a half hours but there's gonna be a sequel so you gotta come Stalker back Stalker two electric boogaloo baby <laughs> <laughs> i have some thoughts first of all i think it's always so interesting that whenever there is a writer as a character like in almost any show movie or, or book they're always just intensely self-loathing <laughs> it feels very much like a self-insert for the writing team um so i always enjoy seeing how they're going to depict a writer in something like this um and i think I, I think it makes sense that that is his his take his interpretation because um like there there is a class divide between the writer the professor and uh the stalker right like a pretty big one yeah. And for the stalker, for most of his life, any threat to him, his family, his livelihood has been very much external. Whereas for the professor and the writer, the only threats really to their livelihood and success is just their own minds. Right. Um, so I think they're the ones that are less likely to have any kind of blind faith in the room and more concerned just about what their own mind might do to them. Um so I, I feel like that's part of why they come to a different conclusion. I also think that um, the kind of absurd way the stalker guides them through the forest with all these rules that don't really make sense and this kind of sense of urgency um, is kind of a metaphor for, for religion as well. Because if you're not someone who is like bought in, then all the rules and rituals and stuff seem to make no sense. And you're just relying on the word of someone who is faithful that, no, these things are important and you'll, you're putting yourself in danger if you don't do them. Yeah. It's really a great point. I mean, he's uh, the stalker is a true believer. He, like I said, there's almost a reverence for, for the place and the dangers that the other two largely don't seem to, to share. Um, at, I think at various uh, points throughout the, the movie, you see both of them sort of deviate from his instructions and he's quite frustrated uh, and a little afraid, obviously, of like what potentially can happen. So do do you uh, do you think that like the dangers are real or is he just the world's greatest prankster or maybe in like, you know, somebody who's like uh, has an overactive imagination? I think there is something very strange and unearthly going on in this place. I do not know if it's exactly what the stalker thinks it is, because <laughs> another thing about religion is oftentimes it's it's used to explain things that we don't understand or right um mm -hmm. and well it may be an explanation and it fits most of what's going on it may not be the right explanation yeah he personifies the the zone like talks about it punishing people and being uh merciful and forgiving and things like that you could substitute the word god for the zone and i bet you would have some very interesting sort of you know threads kind of drawn there 
um, between the two in the way that he talks about, you know, the zone. Do you think this is just like an adrenaline junkie thing with him? Obviously, he gets some money out of it, right? There's the financial motivations, I think, are pretty clear. Um, there, do you think it goes beyond that? Like, what what do you think? Like, what's what's his sort of motivation for wanting to go over and over and not use the room himself? That's the part that surprised me the most. It's like, like wouldn't you want to? take advantage but i guess he said that's like a rule that you're not supposed to so um what do we what do you make of that character and i do want to talk about the end by the way so we'll kind of connect that through i guess kind of off of what may was saying about religion i mean if we look at him as a very religious character and even some of this the information that his wife gives at the very end when she has her fourth wall break <clears throat> is that it's almost like in order to in order to feel like real happiness and in order to feel hope then you also have to experience despair. You have to experience the inverse to really appreciate the opposite. And so it's like, I don't know, It's it, they feel like they need to go through this where they can't always get what they want. They have to hold back and not walk into the room and get what they desire most because they have to appreciate what you, what you can get when you can't get what you want. Or you have to... I don't know. It seemed very convoluted, but it almost felt like they wanted to have, they wanted to hold back. They wanted to be very resolute about not giving into temptation and then also being able to help other people out by letting them. <laughs> it seemed no, kind think, of contradictory, but sort of along that route. I think you're onto something there, Will. Kind of like um, he he is able to feel better about himself even though it seems like you know his his family life isn't ideal maybe and he has obviously like concerns about his daughter uh i think it allows him to feel better about himself to find these people that are so desperate and miserable they're willing to go on this crazy potentially lethal quest right and mm -hmm. and help them um because he's like at least in that scenario not the most unfortunate person right mm -hmm. um so I think it is partly just his his devotion to the zone and wanting to be as like close to it as he can be and also using it as a way to feel at least a little bit better about himself. Yeah, it's almost like a vow of poverty kind of thing, you know, that some priest will take where he's not dipping into the well, you know, he's sort mm -hmm. of keeping himself um, voluntarily like at a at the class that he's at doesn't seem to be particularly wealthy you know from doing this and it seems like it would be a high-paying job you know <laughs> like in most sci-fi films you would imagine like oh i just need i need to take one group in and they're gonna pay a fortune and you know this this will set us up um there's really never never any discussion of that most of the conflict with his wife comes from the fact that she's worried about him essentially leaving her alone like forever either through death or incarceration and yeah, then the at the very end, she says, oh, but I wouldn't have chosen anything else. And it makes, you know, it's like, I don't regret it. And I'm like, you sure seemed like you regretted it in the first part of this film, ma'am. Yeah, you're giving them what for. Yeah, I was going to ask you why the change of heart then at the end, do you think? Like, I think with both characters, but she's like, oh, let's go live in the zone. And you're like, do what now? Like, you want to go to the zone? <laughs> and all of a sudden? I'm sorry, but I just had like the auto zone jingle, like go through my brain when you said that. Like, get in the zone. Auto, auto zone. <laughs> we Here comes that, the copyright claim. That's so bad. <laughs> and I, I'm like, your video has been flagged. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, um, oh I kind of want to posit that maybe he did go into the room. Maybe something changed. Maybe his, 
his wife accepted what he did and was more understanding of it because he walked into the room and then maybe that's why his daughter seems to have supernatural power i'm gonna say that i'm gonna say he he gave in and he he did it i love that that's a very that's... interesting idea yeah. saw... it's jarring it's jarring right she's just yeah. like completely different like mm-hmm. in her general mood and attitude towards him and the family sorry may go ahead um i i was just gonna say like part of loving someone is being angry when they're going out to risk their lives for something right and i i think that's the source of her anger in the beginning um and then when he comes home obviously she's relieved that he actually did make it home right and i think for her just based on that like little monologue um She's kind of known she's never going to get like a fairy tale relationship with this person, but she would rather be with this person than anywhere else. Um, and I think that for her, like being in the zone with him would be preferable to being separated while he continues to do this work. It doesn't seem like it would be a lovely place to live based on what we've seen. Even it's if very nothing... lush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely quiet and lush um but it, it seems like you'd be always on edge a little bit um at least if you're a true believer like him right like you're getting any yeah. good sleep unless you're laying in a bog apparently <laughs> i'm like I'm like there's nowhere better to lay down like what, why are we sleeping in a bog um, <laughs> sorry anyway yeah, look the professor and the writer curled up together all right so like obviously like there's other spots <laughs> You can keep each other company. Apparently, you're not uh, supposed to walk off because you get lost, but that didn't seem to happen with the professor. So cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in that scene, not to digress like too far, is the implication that they kind of loop back around to him, like they thought they were yeah. going from point A to B, but they really went from point A to A. I think yeah, so. It looked like it. Yeah. 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 It's never really 100% sure in some of that stuff because um, n- nobody in either of these two films talks like a human being, generally speaking. Like, and I know, I know Tarkovsky is all about seeking the truth and finding the truth and, and, like, you know, reflecting humanity. I'm like, nobody talks like this, like, first of all. Like, <laughs> and I know it's allegorical, but I'm like, nobody fucking talks like this, my guy. <laughs> like, you have some interesting questions about humans, but none of your humans act like humans. <laughs> like, I saw a couple of things that I thought were kind of cool when I was skimming through thoughts about like symbolism in this film. And one was that someone thought that the dog represented doubt. Mm. So when you see like the stalker, like the color change where he's laying in the bog and the dog shows up, I thought it was almost like a flashback at first. Like maybe he's, Me this too. is something that happened when was there before. And then it's like, no, this is, this is the same dog. And unless that, unless it was a flashback and he just found the same dog again when he came back, but it's like that same dog shows up and then goes back to them. And and I, I'll have to see if I can find the article because the person who posited this was saying something to the effect of it's like the dog represents the doubt that's sort of creeping up on the stalker about maybe like what he's doing and his purpose there, um, which then ends up at the very end where the writer talks about, oh, yeah, I've got like five dogs, you know, kind of like reinforcing this idea about like, especially for him being the one who had like the most doubt and was most the most vocal about everything about being doubtful or pessimistic that seemed to sort of track a little bit. And then even like the wife mentioning something about, oh, you've got like you you have dogs. Oh, that's good. You know, <laughs> like, uh, so I, I just thought that was interesting. I don't know. Any any thoughts on that? 
Um, with regards to the dog, um, I guess I saw that and particularly that ending comment as more as like the dog as a judge of character. Because there's also a bit of a debate mm. about whether it's only the good people that get into the room. And the stalker's like, no, I think it's just those who are really unhappy. And some back and forth about that. And I know in a lot of cases, you know, a dog is a judge of character. The dog will follow the the morally good person in, in a story. Um, it's true. So to me, I, I thought that was more of a, you know, her trying to judge the people that her husband had come back with. Yeah, that's that's a great, great, uh, great point and kind of a insightful way of like kind of tying back to um the natural world and these films like tends to always like stand a little bit apart from everything else that's going on, whether it's supernatural or extraterrestrial. Um, it seems like the natural world uh operates on its own prerogative i guess for lack of a better word you know not that it's personified to the like the extent of like like the zone itself is but um i don't know like maybe maybe the dog is like supposed to represent and this is just me spitballing like the zone itself and like the the reason they don't come to harm is maybe the dog is sort of like you know sees something in these three that allows them to be protected i don't know you could could interpret it that way as well because it is odd like that we're told over and over it's places so dangerous like the military won't pursue you and yet like the the only harm that comes to any of these people are from infighting basically right the hmm. the dog is actually an alien and this is in the lilo and stitch universe hell yeah i like that <laughs> <laughs> can we also talk about that last scene about when she starts moving the glasses and what's in the glasses and what we think that might represent uh magnets no i'm kidding <laughs> nice yeah <laughs> he's going Under to be a magician <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's all we can do to make money here yeah i thought it was kind of cool because i was reading about how it's like because there's one glass that has like what there's like some dark there's like alcohol or something like a beer mm -hmm. or liquor in it and there's one that's clear has nothing in it and there's one that has like eggshell right i can't remember what's that there's like a broken eggshell, I think, in it, right? So yeah, something. Yeah, there's like and whatever's in the third one. And so it's sort of like symbolic of the three guys, of the professor, the writer, and the stalker going out. And like one only gets so far, the other one gets maybe a little bit farther. And then I guess maybe the, the empty glass that's clear is supposed to be the stalker who goes all the way. Maybe? Question mark? Open to interpretation? <laughs> That, yeah, that's a good point. Nothing's accidental, right? So there's clearly a choice being made with the three glasses and like what's in them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was going to ask you who's the empty one, but you're saying it's the stalker, you think, is the uh, the empty vessel. Because I still think he did it. I think he's the one who made it the farthest, went into the room, and that's why things changed. That's my gut. That's how I read the film. Again, I could be completely off, and maybe it's not him. Maybe it's the Maybe it's the professor. Or maybe I, it represents him. I don't know. The glass falling off the table represents something in, else entirely. And as opposed to making it to the zone, it's like going away from the zone or something. The writer is definitely the alcohol. We know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a booze hound. <laughs> I did feel kind of bad when his buddy poured it all out, though. Or not his buddy. I'm sorry. As a stalker poured it out, I'm just like, man, come on. He's like, so calm about it. He's like, can I see that for a minute? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, sure. You can have <laughs> yeah, a Yeah, sure. You want like, a nip? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I had a little bit of a chuckle when the wife's like, oh, maybe like I'll go to like the 
And he's like, no, 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 no. I was thinking, yeah, you know, she's going to kill your ass, dude. That's what's in the, the, the pit of her heart right there is like, this son of a bitch has caused me problems. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, it was funny. I was like, no, 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 don't go there. Uh, I But I, I actually really love the theory that maybe he's like, oh, go on ahead. Like, I'll be right there. And then goes into the room and gets what he wants. I think that would explain. And it's certainly a valid interpretation, like sort of what happens there. I do want to add that uh, the one takeaway I had from this film was a quote from the professor that was, don't stick your nose in someone's underwear if you don't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, classic. I thought that was that was sage advice that anybody could relate to. So, I, I, I did Google that to make sure I had that quote correct. I was a little hesitant to Google search that for keywords, but uh, we were good. So anyway. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you're doing favorite quotes, I liked when the writer was kind of giving his theory on what happened with Porcupine, and he he admits the reason he's not going to go into the room now is that uh, he says, I don't want to pour the filth in my soul onto anyone's head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a solid one, yeah. Yeah, the most human I think anybody uh, in this movie acted to me was like when the professor is gloating a little bit on the phone of like hey i found what was in bunker 40 or whatever and and yeah. like yeah i won't be a scientist anymore but like you can't do shit and then like the guy's like don't hang up on me and i was like <laughs> <laughs> that is the most human thing when you're on a fight with somebody on the phone and you're like you better not hang up on me <laughs> uh, I I <laughs> <laughs> and the smug yeah um look on his face but i will say both of these movies are very bleak in their outlook of uh the human condition and where everybody is going to end up and what their desires may lead to i'm not really anxious to i i was like oh maybe if i like these two i'll go watch mirror because i've heard good things about that and then one of our friends was <laughs> over this morning to pick up marianne for uh, um, a little class that they were going to and she was like oh yeah i watched that as part of like the british film institute's like top whatever and she's like uh well how did you like Solaris? She's like, I've not seen Solaris or Stalker. And I was like, they're both very long. There's a lot of talking. They're gorgeous, but they're very long. And there's a lot of talking. And she was like, mirror is the same thing. And I was like, okay, word. Like, <laughs> How long is that. mirror? Let's get a, let's get time on that one. You know, a little runtime here. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, give me like 15 seconds and I'll tell you 108 minutes. So uh, what? brief by his standards. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Like very wow. brief by standards, yeah. That's a short. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The short films of Andre Tarkovsky are out, like out, hour and a half. Plus. <laughs> That's nice. I will say on a positive note with both of these films, um, I want to read the source material really bad for both of these, like mm. for comparison yes. and contrast purposes, but also just because, you know, um, I think they're intriguing concepts for for both of them. Um, and the only like kind of like Russian or like Eastern European literature I've read is like, you know, typically like the the Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, like that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd be, be keen to check out some some sci fi and, um, you know, yeah. from another another country. It'd be cool. You didn't get any author name drops. I'm like in Solaris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no name drops this time. Or did somebody say Aristotle or Plato or am I like just making that up in my brain like, oh i call these people being socrates because they all ask socrates. questions of each other instead of actually answering anything but yeah oh i think it was a quote from tarkovsky himself where uh like he confirmed that like he was like kind of saw this as um I, it might have been socrates but um one of the philosophers he name drops and 
Um, I love that like one of the most glowing like kind of critical analysis like I uh, saw of this film was like from like an actual like academic was that like so and so like um, considers this to be like one of the greatest films at all time but admitted that it's impossible to analyze or interpret <laughs> like definitively and I was like okay well at least at least you conceded that I guess um, well um, despite both of these being uh, lengthier numbers and a little bit on the slow side I'm glad that I saw both of them I think they're interesting films with some interesting things to say more questions than answers uh, beautiful and it's good to, to check them off the uh, the old list of shame um, since college like both of these have been on my radar so since like 2007 forward we'll say like because I would have kind of discovered these um you know towards like the back half of my college career so you guys glad you watched them yeah i'd say so i'm always interested in seeing sci-fi from other countries i feel like it's been mostly hollywood i've seen sci-fi films from yeah it's like a little uh to use something tarkovsky apparently loves uh it's like a mirror you know um reflecting maybe some of the attitudes and thoughts of like that time and place which is very different than the states you think two years after star wars here you know and then a few years after 2001 um for for solaris like very very different movies right all around all right so for our video watchers and audio listeners uh if you're watching a video you probably noticed that the hosts are not appearing anywhere on the screen suddenly uh and if you're an audio listener you will note an absence of will rotondi's voice we had some technical difficulties that are unfortunately going to uh, force us to stop the episode there, uh, which seems a little Tarkovsky, I guess, in a way, in an odd way. <laughs> um, Our so final apologize- interpretation is up to you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we do apologize for the, for the abrupt uh, stop here. Uh, May and I are going to draw our next main quest together, and obviously we'll let Mr. Rotondi know what that ends up being. And uh, next week we'll have a game for you, uh, as is tradition, for the end of the podcast. May, are you ready to hear what our next film is going to be? I'm so ready. Unless All it's right. mine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I, I don't know what the percentages are exactly, but um, there's a chance. I feel like it is about time for one of mine again. So, <laughs> Well, this one's going to be a, a unicorn or dead horse. And okay. it is going to be... Ah, it's Mr. Rotondi's pick, naturally, because he's not here. That's how it's going to roll. <laughs> uh, and we're going to be watching Mission Impossible 2. And oh, hell I yeah. I can't wait to have this discussion because um, this film's interesting in a lot of ways, right? Like, uh, So back when this film came out, it was just Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible 2. And I think you could make the argument that the best Mission Impossible films have actually been like 4, 5, and 6, if you watch that series at all. Um, so, uh, this one kind of in a bubble chamber, I guess we'll have to like, say, uh, we can only compare it to mission impossible one, um, you know, for the sake of the, uh, the podcast and, uh, just, I think a lot of places this discussion could go. So I'm very excited. (laughs) Um, have you seen this film before? So I've seen the first or no, I, I guess I've seen parts of the first mission impossible and I've seen the fourth one and that's it. So I am excited. The fourth, fifth, and sixth are by far the best. Um, it's almost like they re- successfully rebooted the franchise, like in a way. Um, I would urge you to watch one if you have time. 
um, just to get a oh, sense yeah. of what that, what no, that I'm going is. To. Yeah. Okay. And two is a John Woo directed film. So we've talked about him on the podcast uh, as one of the, you know, founding fathers of like the Hong Kong action scene. So dual wielding guns, lots of flashy action. Um, so uh, imagine that brought to Mission Impossible and I will not color your expectations or opinions past that for now. Woo. Um, I'm excited. All right. Well, audience, sorry about the technical glitches again, uh, but we'll have it all back under control next week. And until then, we love you. Bye. Bye.